Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, January the 6th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. And we'll have dispatches on the recently released video of the killing of Israeli Defense Forces captive soldiers by their own troops. We will remember Rafat al uh one month after his martyrdom in Gaza. The Sudanese Armed Forces General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan has again rejected a meeting with Rapid Support Forces leader Mohamed Hamdan Dogalo Hamedi, and the Somalian government has rejected a deal between breakaway Somaliland and Kenya for the utilization of a port. In the second hour, we address the question of genocide in the modern era. Later, we look back on the 161st anniversary of the emancipation Proclamation. Finally, we pay tribute to the upcoming holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, with uh, the music of the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, the legendary singer Faya Tess. Let's listen in. with DJ Ninja. Follow on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at DJ Ninja254. Tomabe, Sonoco, 
Trophy of a family, trompe, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leave a low, you're not good. 
Welcome back, and that was Faya Tess uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, a collection uh, of her many, uh, many songs. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, January the 6th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to go into our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. It was four soldiers, not three, that Israel killed while claiming that its war on Gaza is largely motivated by the need to rescue those very same soldiers. Israel has said that on December the 15th, it mistakenly killed three of its own soldiers in the fierce fighting of the Shajahia neighborhood in Gaza. However, a just-released Qassam video showed that, in fact, three soldiers and one officer were killed by the Israeli military. The video shows these soldiers demanding that their government stop the bombardment of Gaza and release them, along with other soldiers, through a deal with Hamas. This is the Al-Qasim statement, uh, which was sent via the group's telegram channel describing their just-released video. It says, and we quote, that the attached video shows the settler captives Yotam Haim, Samir Talaka, and Alan Smarts, who were killed by occupation soldiers while waving white flags and shouting for help in Hebrew in Shijaia neighborhood in Gaza. Prior to their deaths, the settlers, a reference to the Israeli soldiers, recorded messages to their family in which they expressed their desire to be freed. They also directed a message to Netanyahu in which they asked him to stop the bombing of Gaza as they had nearly been bombed multiple times. Finally, they attested that Palestinian resistance fighters had treated them well throughout their captivity. The video opens with text uh, which reads, Their wish uh, was to return alive, but something uh, changed. It concluded, it concludes that the text uh, which reads, Netanyahu and his racist extremist government killed them, time passes and fades. Aside uh, from the three who were admittedly killed by Israel, there was a fourth soldier referred to in the video as an officer whose killing was not admitted uh, by Israel. The point-blank killing of the soldiers in Shijaia was part of a greater embarrassment for the Israeli army, whose failed attempt at overtaking Shijaia resulted in the sidelining and retreat of much of the Golani Brigade, the Israeli's top elite military force. And tributes have been paid to Rafat Al-Ariya at many Palestinian solidarity events. Israeli's assassination of Dr. Rafat Al-Arir on December the 6th shocked people who care about justice throughout the world. One month on from that horrific crime, Rafat's friends shared their memories of a remarkable teacher and writer. They recall how Rafat's commitment uh, to uh, the truth touched everyone around him. 
According to Pam Bailey, learning English is a priority for many youth in Gaza, since some of the best-paying jobs are with international non-governmental organizations. But I heard so many complaints about the teachers there because they often teach strictly from the book. The one teacher who I uniformly heard praises about, however, was Rafat Alarir. He was a tough critic, no doubt about it. But it was because he was so committed to his students and because he was so com- so passionate about both the language and his literature. That's why when I co-founded uh, We Are Not Numbers, I knew we had to recruit him to teach our developing writers. And he became my mentor as well in the process. There was a time when I became a target of a vicious online, just as he recently experienced for being so honest in his views. And he was my counselor and confidant during those tough times. I will miss you, Rafat. Pam Bailey is a co-founder, and we are not of We Are Not Numbers. And if you'd like to read uh, some of the additional letters uh, in uh, this piece uh, that was uh, published uh, by uh, the Palestine Chronicle, uh, just uh, log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, and uh, you can read uh, more uh, of these accounts uh, in regard to the situation in Palestine. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, January 6, uh, 2024. In other news, Al Burhan, who is the general uh, leading the Sudanese Armed Forces, extended an invitation for dialogue with Sudanese politicians but urged them to distance themselves from the Rapid Support Forces and its leader, Mohammed Hamdan Dalgalo. Sudan's military general and de facto leader Abdel Fattah el-Bahan has rejected the most recent reconciliation attempts with his rival paramilitary group, uh, the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF. Instead, he has affirmed his commitment to continuing a nine-month-long conflict with the Rapid Support Forces. Quote, the whole world witnessed these rebel forces, RSF, committing war crimes and crimes against humanity in West Darfur and the rest of Sudan. Al-Bahan told troops gathered in Port Sudan uh, in a video released uh, by his office yesterday referring to the ethnic cleansing in and around the West Darfur city of Al-Janina. For that reason, we have no reconciliation with them. We have no agreement with them, he added. He further stressed uh, that the RSF, quote, doesn't seek the good for the country, unquote, and accused it of engaging in the looting of people's priorities. At the same time, he extended an invitation for dialogue with Sudanese politicians, urging them to disassociate themselves from the RSF and its leaders, Mohammed Hamdan Delgallo. Earlier in the week, Delgallo, also known as Hameti, agreed to a ceasefire proposed by civilian groups contingent on the military concurrence. However, Skeptics raised questions uh, concerning uh, due to the paramilitary forces' track record of not fulfilling its commitments. Last month, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGOD, and African Trade Bloc successfully facilitated an agreement for Burhan and Agallo to engage in, in, in an in-person meeting. However, on Friday, Burhan rejected the possibility of such a meeting and proceeded to 
derogatorily referred to his opponent as a clown, a traitor, and a coward. Additionally, he adamantly refused to accept the ceasefire agreement that Dagalo had signed in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, earlier in the week. And finally, a naval and commercial access to Somaliland's coast was granted to the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia in exchange for recognizing the breakaway region's independence. Ethiopia and Somaliland signed a historic deal which grants Ethiopia access to naval and commercial ports along the Somaliland coast in exchange for recognition of the breakaway republic's independence. Addressing the media at a press conference in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa following his meeting with the country's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, President Mews Bihi of Somaliland stated, quote, we are pleased to announce and want to express gratitude to the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, according to our agreement written here, that we will give 20 kilometers of sea and they will recognize us, unquote. Somaliland's Information Minister Ali Hassan Mohammed believes the deal is a game changer, reiterating his government's view that the deal involved providing Ethiopia with 20 kilometers, that is 12 miles of sea access in exchange for diplomatic recognition. On another note, the Somalian government was steadfast in its position that Somaliland is an integral part of the country and declared its intentions to hold an emergency meeting of its cabinet in response to the Memorandum of Understanding, as reported by the state's news agency, SONA. Abiy's office welcomed the agreement in a statement on X, formerly known as Twitter, highlighting a commitment to, quote, advance mutual interest through cooperation based on reciprocity, unquote. Notably, the statement did not explicitly mention the recognition of Somaliland. It added, the Memorandum of Understanding shall pave the way to realize the aspiration to secure access to the sea and diversify its access to seaports, ushering in a new chapter of cooperation and regional integration. According to Redwan Hussein, Abi Ahmed's advisor, the details of the memorandum would be formalized in a follow-up meeting next month. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal, including this segment of our program. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and uh, that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. 
And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week. One would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? How long have you hated your white teacher? Who told you you love your black preacher? Do you respect? Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin People Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And love for our nation would make a better society Now some of us Would rather cuss And make a fuss Than to bring about A little trust But we shall overcome I believe someday If you'll only listen To what I have to say And how long have you had Your white teacher Your black preacher Can you respect Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin I say now people Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And if you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? And if you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose? My brothers, if there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? If you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose? My brothers, the impressions uh, with uh, lead singer Curtis Mayfield, uh, the track entitled choice of colors and just coming up uh in another nine days uh, will be the 95th birthday of uh, the late uh, dr martin luther king jr and uh, it will be uh commemorated here in the city of detroit where we we're broadcasting from at the st matthews uh, st joseph's episcopal church located at 
8850 Woodward Avenue at Holbrook in the north end section of the city of Detroit. And uh, we want to uh, go back and listen to a very important historical chapter. That is uh, the Chicago Freedom Movement of the summer of 1966. And, of course, uh, during that period, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference intervened in an ongoing struggle that was taking place in um, the third largest municipality in the United States in 1966, the city of Chicago. And uh, that summer, uh, despite Dr. King's efforts uh, to uh, bring about reforms, a rebellion erupted um, in July of 1966 uh, due to the overall uh, anger and frustration of the masses in Chicago with the refusal uh, to abide by any of the demands that had been put forward by the Chicago Freedom Movement. Let's listen uh, to this report from CBS News uh, from the week of uh, July 11th, uh, 1966. This is Mike Wallace in New York. In our studios in Chicago is Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King, I understand that you have just reached agreement with Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago. Does that mean that the threat of violence tonight in Chicago is considerably diminished in your estimation? Well, I certainly hope so, and in a sense, I feel that the threat of violence tonight is diminished a great deal as a result of the agreement. I don't want to give the impression uh, that the agreement reached this afternoon will in any way solve the ultimate problems which we face in Chicago, uh, but I do think they will do a great deal to ease tensions tonight. We'll have an opportunity to talk to you at some length later in this broadcast, Dr. King. First, for an on-the-spot report direct from a National Guard command post in Chicago, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant. This is Bill Plant at the Northwest Armory in Chicago. Despite that agreement between Mayor Daley and Dr. Martin Luther King, 3,000 Illinois National Guard troops are deployed tonight in a four-square-mile area of Chicago's near southwest side where shooting and vandalism and rioting have occurred for the past three nights. The troops are commanded by Major General Francis Kane, commander of the Guard. This is his command post. Thus far, this evening has been relatively quiet. A situation map pinpoints the trouble spots of previous nights. Additional troops are standing by, ready to serve as security guards in the event that prisoners are taken tonight. Chicago Police Superintendent Orlando Wilson said today that he had advised the mayor to call out the Illinois National Guard because he felt that the situation here was beyond the capacity of civil authority. The guardsmen are armed with pistols, rifles, grenades, machine guns, bayonets, and they will use tear gas, their commander says, if it is necessary. They are now patrolling the area. Two persons are dead in the wake of the rioting. There is heavy property damage. There was much looting and vandalism. It all began with a minor incident, and it grew steadily worse. This is the story of the Chicago riots. CBS News presents a special report. The Chicago Riots. Here is CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace. Chicago is the second city of this nation. Tonight it is the nation's number one battleground embroiled in racial crisis. It is a proud and prosperous city, home of the meat packer, the nation's rail hub, merchant to the Middle West. Luxury skyscrapers attest to its affluence. Yacht clubs dot its lake shores. Gracious suburbs lie around its central core. 
But in that central core are the Negro ghettos, where the turmoil of the last three nights was spawned. Almost one of every three persons in Chicago's three and a half million is a Negro. Citywide, unemployment among those Negroes is three times that of whites. And among teenagers, the disparity is even greater. Eight out of ten Negro children go to segregated schools. The annual income of the average Negro family in Chicago is 40% lower than the average white families. Into that environment last Sunday came Dr. Martin Luther King, moving the Negro revolution from south to north. Last Sunday, Dr. King addressed a civil rights rally, an anti-poverty rally at Chicago's Soldier Field. He outlined 35 demands for equal rights, and he insisted that nonviolence was the only way to achieve them. After speaking, Dr. King led his followers on a three-mile march to City Hall to post a list of those demands to make Chicago, in his words, a free and open city. Those demands, among other things, called for open housing, more Negro employment, and negotiations by the city with so-called welfare unions organized by the civil rights movement. And then at City Hall, as King used adhesive tape to post the demands, the marchers crowded round him. King took the dramatic action just a day before meeting with Chicago's Mayor Richard Daley on the problems of the Chicago Negro. Afterwards, they held separate news conferences and expressed sharply differing points of view. He resolved, they have to be resolved. They can't just be resolved overnight. No reasonable person thinks they can, and no reasonable person expects they can. But I know if people sit down and exchange what thoughts they are, and also with the problem, give some of the ways and means of solving the problem. It's easy to keep saying, certainly we have slums. You have slums in Atlanta, you have slums in New York, you have slums in every city of the United States, and the people of Chicago certainly are not proud of the slums. I'm not proud of the slums. I would hope that tomorrow every slum uh, building in Chicago would be demolished and we'd have a decent home and a decent apartment for every family. This is the aim of the present administration, and this is our program, and this is our objective, and we're going to go through with it, and we're trying to go through with it. The mayor said to us that uh, things were already going on, that they were seeking to do certain things on the question of slums and on uh, the various problems that we face in housing. Our contention was that while things were being done, they were merely bringing about surface changes and that the problem is so gigantic in extent that it demanded structural changes. It demanded an imaginative, bold program because the Negro community can no longer live with token changes. Dr. King and Mayor Daley achieved no meeting of the minds. Critics of both said that neither man was really listening to the other. Dr. King talked later of the methods the Negro community would use to secure what he called a free and open Chicago. He spoke of using the Negro vote, of boycotts, of sit-ins and picketing. And then, on the west side of Chicago, in 96-degree temperatures at 5 o'clock last Tuesday afternoon, some Negro children at the corner of Roosevelt Road and Throop Street opened a fire hydrant. Here was the shabby intersection where it all began. Chicago's slum kids wanted some relief from the heat, so the residents did what residents of city slums do everywhere. They turned on a hydrant. But the police came and turned it off, and they said they had to preserve the water pressure in case of fire. The Negro residents were not impressed. They turned another hydrant on. As fast as police went around turning hydrants off, the Negroes opened others. 
And they protested that once again the police were singling them out. The Negroes said the hydrants were being allowed to run open just a short distance away where Italian-Americans lived. The youngsters made the most of it as the street was turned into a kind of wading pool. These are young people who must find most of their pleasures in the street. Many of them are school dropouts. The juvenile delinquency rates in Chicago are highest in this area. 28 of every 100 children here are classified delinquent. When the police turned off the hydrants once again, this playful spirit that you see evaporated quickly. Rocks were thrown at police, and then the real trouble began. There was a chase down the street, and then arrests followed. This was just the beginning of a night of trouble and vandalism in which 24 people were to be picked up by the police. This episode of heat, water, and sudden temper was the start of an evening in which store windows in the neighborhood were broken and stores were looted, but the incidents were still relatively minor. The next morning, Mayor Daly held a news conference at which religious leaders were present, including Roman Catholic Archbishop John Cody. They spoke of the disturbances the night before, and both men portrayed the street episodes in very mild terms. I think that uh, we do not need to, need to be too concerned about these occasional things, although they're certainly giving a bad image to our city. I would hope and pray that we would have the uh, understanding that we're trying to bring to every section of our city. I don't think it was a riot. I think that it was, as other cities would describe such an event, uh, a juvenile incident. But later that day, police again closed an open water hydrant, and this time the response in the Negro neighborhood was furious. There was more vandalism, there was looting, and crowds of Negroes surged into the streets. They were angry and they were bent on destruction. 400 policemen moved into the area. They threatened to arrest anyone who didn't go home and stay there, and they made good their warning. A number of policemen were injured by flying bricks and rocks and bottles. The night brought intensified violence. Molotov cocktails were hurled into buildings and numerous fires were set. Firemen were stoned when they tried to put out the fires. In one block alone, four fires were burning at the same time. While buildings were gutted, dozens of stores were being looted. As police marched through the streets, there was firing by snipers. Police fired back, and two residents were hit and wounded by stray bullets. Police arrested 20 Negro youths and seized dozens of others who were later released. And scores of people were injured in this second night of combat between Negroes and police. By Thursday, as local church leaders gathered at the Shiloh Baptist Church to see what they could do to help ease the situation... It was obvious that something more than juvenile incidents were involved. But Dr. King maintained that his non-violent movement was not to blame. We are trying to conduct a non-violent movement here in Chicago. And we are going on with that program. But we need support. And there is no point in the power structure and anybody else saying that because we are peacefully going around trying to change conditions that we are the cause of the riots. That's dishonest. It is untrue. It is unfair to say it to the public because we have stood up for nonviolence with all of our hearts. And those who will make this peaceful revolution impossible will make a violent revolution inevitable. And we've got to get this over. I need help. 
I need some victories. I need some concessions to take back. Chester Robinson, who formed the West Side Organization, said the violence could be held down if the clergyman would help get the young people back inside their homes. This is why we have to get out into the streets. Not in a march, not as a protest, but as uh, men and women who are trying to solve problems. And if we can talk to some of these mothers, we can talk to some of these kids, talk to some of these uh, teenagers, we can get them inside. But if we don't, there's going to be more burning, there's going to be more uh, police brutality, and tonight, there might be some shooting on the part of the community people. And there was, in the most violent night of the week, CBS News correspondent John Lawrence reports. George, stay down. There might be something chilling over here. Stop calling me, Hey, There was as much gunfire on the corner of Wood and Lake last night as a Vietnam battlefield. A hundred police shot it out with snipers in an all-Negro apartment fight. The snipers fired from windows. The police blasted back from behind parked cars. I can't tell from there. On the second window down, on the left, sir. That's the son of a Right up there. Despite all the gunfire at Wood and Lake, not one person was wounded in the crowded buildings, and no police were hit. The snipers escaped in the maze of stairways and apartments. The bloodshed began later, a few miles away. This is Roosevelt Road, running through the heart of the Negro West Side, scene of most of the looting and shooting. It is a slum boulevard of white store owners and Negro customers, where the white man is not welcome after dark. Almost every store window was smashed for blocks. Almost everything was stolen or destroyed, and about a dozen shops were set ablaze. None of the fires along Roosevelt Road appeared to be serious, and few people were hurt. The biggest blow was to the store owners, who lost tens of thousands of dollars in goods. A Molotov cocktail, a bottle, gasoline, and a rag for a wick makes an effective homemade firebomb. Many Molotov cocktails were thrown in the streets. A boy was seized as a suspect in the shooting of a policeman in a narrow alley off Roosevelt Road. The policeman, shot in the back while chasing a looter, survived his wound. The wounded patrolman was rushed to a hospital where he's recovering today. One of the suspects, deathly afraid, pleaded with the police not to shoot him. A shot rang out and the police ducked for cover. Let's see if we can get him out. Get off of here. 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 Get off of here
This young man, who was from Mississippi, was one of two Negroes shot and killed last night. Police say he was looting a store on Roosevelt Road, chased down the same alley where the policeman was wounded, and shot. Many were shot in the series of sporadic shootings between police and Negroes. Hundreds were arrested. After dawn, the prisoners were taken to criminal court for the massive task of booking them. They were charged with everything from disorderly conduct to treason. Treason in the case of 13 persons caught in an apartment. Police say they were talking about narcotics and planning widespread demolition and murder. There were reports that militant revolutionary groups were taking part in the rioting, especially the shooting at police. During the day, it was relatively quiet on the west side. There was scattered looting, but no serious outbreaks until mid-afternoon. A huge fire broke out in the riot area. A bottling company plant burst into flames and burned to the ground. And apparently, it was set by arsonists. A co-owner of the company told CBS News correspondent Bruce Morton that he had been threatened, that he was warned as late as this morning when he was told his block-long building would be burned. And it was burned. When that wall collapsed, people were evacuated from their homes in the area. But apparently, despite all the flames along that block, no one was hurt. One Negro employee said all the Negroes in the buildings had been warned today to get out, for the building would be burned down. Then Illinois Governor Otto Kerner mobilized the National Guard. 3,000 men from the 33rd Infantry Division were called to their armories, dressed in battle fatigues and armed. Just takes a second to slip the down. Tear gas, but just as a secondary precautionary measure. The division has just returned from two weeks of summer training, and its commanding general says his men are well prepared for riot control. But the guardsmen, who are civilians, seem upset, not welcoming the task of keeping order, possibly shooting at people in their hometown. John Lawrence, CBS News, Chicago. In the last three nights, then, in Chicago, there have been more than 300 arrests in the riot areas, dozens injured, two deaths. At this moment, 900 police are scattered through the Negro ghettos guarding against another violent night. As John Lawrence said, Governor Otto Kerner has ordered out 3,000 men of the Illinois National Guard. They're at the ready. And the citizens of Chicago wait anxiously and hopefully for a peaceful night ahead. The question many ask tonight is, why Chicago and why now? Many of these teenagers are not vicious within themselves to the point of wanting to rise up against a whole city. Whenever they have difficulty, these groups constantly have their little wars among themselves. But it is not a normal procedure to expect young people to rise up against a whole city. It has to be some outside interference. Somebody who should not be doing it. Well, I think uh, you can't charge it directly to Martin Luther King, but surely some of the people that came in here and uh, have been talking for the last year in violence and showing pictures and instructing people how to conduct violence, and they're on this staff, they're responsible in a great measure 
for the instructions that have been given, the training of the youngsters, and this has been called to the attention I have repeatedly for the last year. The people who are in here training, actually training, and there's tapes on that, there's documentation, there's anything you want to show that certain elements that were in our city were in here for no other purpose but to bring disorder on the streets of Chicago. Someone has to train him. Who makes a Molotov cocktail? Don't you think a youngster makes that? Someone has to train him. Someone has to show him. Dr. Martin Luther King is in our Chicago studios. Dr. King, what about it? This charge that either you or your people are in some measure responsible for the violence that has broken out in Chicago the past three nights. Well, this is absolutely untrue and unfounded. It is a known fact all over the nation and over the world that I have taught consistently a doctrine of nonviolence. I have done it here in Chicago, and uh, all of the members of my staff are absolutely committed uh, to nonviolence, and I think it is totally unjust and even irresponsible to say that the individuals who are trying to bring about a peaceful re resolution of a very serious problem are responsible for riots when they develop. We do not advocate riots. We think they are socially destructive and that they are self-defeating. And I think we'll have to put the blame for this riot where it really is. And that is the failure of America and the failure of the city of Chicago to deliver its promises to the Negro people. And this riot uh, was born out of the wounds of frustration uh, despair, deep discontent, and uh, seething desperation on the part of those who were uh, misguidedly lashing out against uh, a society that they feel did a grave injustice and continues to do a grave injustice to them. Uh, Dr. King, Mayor Daly says that your people, in a sense, perhaps taught violence by displaying films of violence. Films of what, for instance, to young people in Chicago? There have been instances when we showed films of Watts, but we did it for a very positive reason. We were seeking to show that Watts accomplished nothing but the death of 34 Negroes and the destruction of property and the destruction of a community where the people themselves live, where they needed uh, to hold it together. In other words, these films were shown to demonstrate the impracticality of violence and the fact that nothing could be more unwise than to follow the course of Watts. You are said just tonight to have reached an agreement with Mayor Daley in Chicago. Could you detail that agreement for us? Well, this agreement is uh, something that came about in an attempt to bring about some immediate relief. We realize that there are still long-term uh, things that must be done, and we will continue with that program to grapple with the serious problems of housing, of jobs, of education, welfare, and the other areas. But we felt that there were some things that the, the mayor could do today or tomorrow so that we could go back and say to the people that something will change, and this may ease tensions. What are uh, those we, things, Dr. King, that are going to change today or tomorrow? Well, the mayor first agreed to provide uh, water sprinklers, so to speak, that could be placed on fire hydrants in uh, communities where excessive heat existed and where children were in dire need of 
some cool land and cool water so that this would be done immediately. In those areas, people live in very crowded housing conditions, and it's something like this is needed. The second thing is that uh, in the areas of the riding, there are few parks and recreational facilities and no swimming pools. So an agreement was made to build swimming pools immediately and recreational facilities in those areas and to make it possible for Negroes to use uh, parks in adjacent communities where they have been harassed and intimidated in the past. And the other thing is the mayor agreed to appoint a committee of 100 citizens to review all police activities and make recommendations to him concerning ways and means to improve relationships uh, between policemen and uh, the citizens of the community, particularly the Negro community. Dr. King, we had a report this afternoon from uh, Washington correspondent Daniel Shore of CBS News of the fact that these Chicago riots were sparked at least in part, perhaps in large measure, by an organized guerrilla action by armed Negro extremists. Well, I don't know the details of uh, those who may be behind the riots. I mean, I don't know the details of forces that may have uh, sought to fan the flames and the riots. Uh, there may be groups that perpetuated it once it got started. It got started spontaneously. Now, after that, there may have been groups that uh, wanted to see violence and encouraged it. It is no secret that in uh, many of the ghettos of our country, we read about this in magazines and other places, uh, there are groups strongly advocating violence and underground groups seeking to carry it out. Uh, and I think it is true that this may exist to some degree. But I have no information on that, and I certainly couldn't say that that is the case. Floyd McKissick, the National Director of Corps, told me this afternoon that more and more Negroes across the country are buying more and more guns, Dr. King. Here again, this may be true. I know that uh, there is a mood in some segments of the Negro community uh, that is so impatient that uh, violence is becoming a part of their Response. I think this is very unfortunate because I think violence creates many more social problems than it solves. But I do think that it is necessary for our nation to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the conditions of injustice, of economic deprivation, of depressing housing conditions, inadequate education, and all of these things which breed violence. For after all, the Negro is the victim of broken promises, of deferred dreams, and that's still a tragic gulf between promise and fulfillment. Thank you very much, Dr. King, in our Chicago studios. Roger Wilkins, director of the Community Relations Service of the Justice Department and a nephew of Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, was dispatched to Chicago early this evening to keep President Johnson and the Justice Department abreast of developments there in that city. For a progress report on what has transpired in Chicago while we have been on the air, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant. Reports of scattered incidents are beginning to come in. They are officially classified as minor, rock throwing, a group of children breaking a window, grabbing whatever they can hold and running with it, and some small crowds dispersed. And 3,000 National Guardsmen are patrolling. Josh Darza has that story. The first National Guard troops took to the streets just before 8 p.m. this evening. 
This initial unit was the 1st Battalion of the 3rd Brigade of the Illinois National Guard. These troops were armed with rifles, bayonets, hand grenades, BARs, machine guns, and every type of device used to quell disturbances. The Commandant of the, sec of the 3rd Brigade, Colonel Curtis Milan, a veteran of the fighting of Normandy in the Battle of the Bulge, says the National Guard is prepared even for door-to-door -door combat. It promised to be a long night on the west side of Chicago. The agreement reached between Mayor Richard Daly and Dr. Martin Luther King calls for the addition of sprinkler units to the fire hydrants in the city of Chicago, federal funds for pools, and a citizens' committee to discuss police problems. These will undoubtedly help, officials say, to alleviate the situation here. But whatever the future is to be in race relations, the city has gone to great lengths to ward off just such happenings as have occurred the past three nights. And those who know such conditions say that unless the conditions are wiped out, it could happen again. This is Bill Plant, CBS News at the Northwest Armory, Chicago. And so Chicago moves into another tense and difficult summer night. But not just Chicago. Well, the fact is that the traditional Negro leadership, the men of CORE and SCLC, of SNCC and the NAACP, these men confess they are not sure they can control the bitterness and the frustration rising now among Negroes in 40 cities of the North. Washington and Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Newark, Cleveland, St. Louis, Oakland, and Los Angeles. In all these cities, too, the fuse is lit. There is no intent here to cry danger where there is none. Rather, there is the need to tell America again what frustration, bitterness, and envy lie not very deep beneath the surface of this affluent society. This is Mike Wallace. Good night. This has been a special report from CBS News. Welcome back. And that was a report from uh, CBS News archive report from July, the second full week of July in 1966 in Chicago. As we mentioned earlier, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, will be commemorating his 95th birthday. Uh, this coming Monday, January the 15th, one week uh, from this coming Monday, uh, in the city of Detroit at the St. Matthew's St. Joseph's Episcopal Church, beginning at noon on Monday, January 15th, uh, 2024. And uh, the event uh, is located at 8850 Woodward Avenue in uh, the north end area of the city of Detroit. And uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
the Motown Sound, Detroit's own uh, Four Tops, uh, with the track entitled You Keep Running Away. And uh, just uh, five days ago, represented the 161st anniversary of the signing and the enactment of the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st of 1863, known as Emancipation Day among African people uh, in the United States. Let's listen to a lecture uh, by David Blight of Yale University on the origins and impact uh, of the Emancipation Proclamation. The first formally recognized or organized black regiment in the Civil War was known as the First South Carolina Volunteers. It was organized entirely and exclusively among freed slaves along the Sea Islands of South Carolina. It had an amazing non-commissioned officer whose name was Prince Rivers. A man who'd been a slave yesterday, but a free man by 1862, and whom and whose white commanding officer, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, said in another land and another time he could command any army in the world. Thomas Wentworth Higginson was an abolitionist from Worcester, Massachusetts, who ended up the colonel and the commander of that regiment. Nearly 1,000 freed slaves recruited among the roughly 35 to 40,000 former slaves along the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands. Higginson went on to write a great book about it called Army Life in a Black Regiment. And among the uh, remarkable descriptions he left in that classic is this description from Thanksgiving Day, 1862. So it's November 62. The preliminary Emancipation Proclamation is in place but the final Emancipation Proclamation hasn't quite happened yet. It was actually the first formally, legally, federally recognized Thanksgiving Day, so decreed by Abraham Lincoln. And Higginson had his headquarters in an old plantation house. He looked out of broken windows at this abandoned plantation in the Sea Islands through what he described as the great avenues of great live oaks. And he observed that, quote, all this is the universal southern panorama, but five minutes' walk beyond the hovels and the live oaks will bring one to something so unsouthern that the whole southern coast at this moment trembles at the suggestion of such a thing, a camp of a regiment of freed slaves. Almost two years later, one of those freed slaves named George Hatton wrote a couple letters from the front. George Hatton was a former slave. He had lived part of his life in Washington, D.C., part of his life in Virginia, North Carolina. He'd been around. He was at this point, by April of 1864, a non-commissioned sergeant in Company C, 1st Regiment, United States Colored Troops. 
They were in camp near New Bern, North Carolina. And he sat down to write a letter to reflect upon the circumstance that he found himself in. Hatton, his fellow soldiers and their families, had lived generations as slaves. And this is what he wrote. He says, though the government openly declared that it did not want the Negroes in this conflict, I look around me and see hundreds of colored men armed and ready to defend the government at any moment. And such are my feelings that I can only say the fetters have fallen, our bondage is over. A month later, Hatton's regiment was in camp near Jamestown, Virginia, and he didn't miss the irony of being at Jamestown, founding site of Virginia. And into his lines came several black freed women who all declared they had recently been severely whipped by a master. Members of Hatton's company managed to capture that slave owner, a Mr. Clayton, the man who had allegedly administered the beatings on these women. The white Virginian was stripped to the waist. He was tied to a tree. And he was given 20 lashes by one of his own former slaves, a man named William Harris, who was now a member of the Union Army. In turn, each of the women that Clayton had beaten were given the whip and their chance to lay the lash on the slaveholder's back. The women were given leave, said Sergeant Hatton, his words, to remind him that they were no longer his, but safely housed in Abraham's bosom and under the protection of the star-spangled banner and guarded by their own patriotic though once downtrodden race. In Hatton's letter, he once again felt lost for words to describe the transformation he was witnessing. Oh, that I had the tongue to express my feelings, he wrote, while standing on the banks of the James River on the soil of old Virginia, the mother state of slavery, as a witness of such a sudden reverse. The day is clear. The fields of grain are beautiful, and the birds are singing sweet, melodious songs, while poor Mr. Clayton is crying to his servants for mercy. That's a revolution described in the words of a former slave, words that were trying to capture the transformations of history at the same time his actions were trying to transform history. Words. Now, we will forever debate in this society the meaning of the Emancipation Proclamation. Over and over and over again we debate, did it really free anybody? Why did it only free the slaves in the states in rebellion? Why was Lincoln so bloody legalistic in this document? Was Richard Hofstetter right when he said it had all the eloquence of a bill of lading? Which means a grocery list. Why was it written like it was a legal brief in court? 
here and there laced with some remarkable phrases? Why was he so careful not to free the slaves in the border states that hadn't left the Union? And on and on. But I think we should make no mistake, the Emancipation Proclamation is a terribly important American document. Emancipation is not just the story of great documents, as I'm trying to argue, but this one's important. The second paragraph reads, and this is, by the way, Lincoln's own handwriting. This is a facsimile of the original. He wrote some three or four originals. That on the first day of January in this year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, God is this legalistic, shall be then, this is not legalistic, then, thenceforward, and forever free. And the executive government of this United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, the army and navy are now bound to do this, it says, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. Actual freedom. Now, yeah, it was a limited document. It didn't free as many slaves as the Second Confiscation Act legally already set in motion. That's true. But this is the most important thing to remember about the Emancipation Proclamation. Most black folks didn't care about the details of it. What they cared about is the, that the United States government had acted and said they were going to be free. There were at least four immediate and visible effects of the proclamation once it went into effect on January 1st. Every forward step of the Union armies now would be, whether some of those officers liked it or not, a liberating step. Secondly, News of this proclamation, whatever the details and the fine print, would spread like wildflower, uh, wildfire, excuse me, across the South. And it would bring about, there's no question, it will bring about increased activity, increased flight, increased movement toward Union lines by freed people where they can do it. And there's all over, all over the record we have testimony of Confederate soldiers themselves, of Southerners, white Southerners themselves, saying they first heard about the Emancipation Proclamation from their slaves. Third, it committed the United States government in the eyes of the world, and it's terribly important when we remember that Great Britain was on the verge of recognition of the Confederacy. More on that a bit later in the course of how that foreign relationship 
and the problem of Civil War diplomacy is being managed by the two governments, Union and Confederate. And fourth, on the second page of the Emancipation Proclamation, or is it the third, in another very legalistic paragraph, Lincoln formally authorizes once and for all, although it's already begun to happen, the recruitment of black men into the Union armies and navies. And it authorizes a formal process now to recruit black men to the Union uniform. And before the war will end, about 10% of all Union forces will be African Americans. Approximately 180,000, 80% of whom were former slaves from the slave states. Now, in that fall of 1862, Frederick Douglass put down his cudgel that he'd been beating Lincoln with for a year in his editorials, and he beat him bitterly at times. At one point in, in, in late 61, he called Abraham Lincoln the most powerful slave catcher in the world. That was Douglass's opinion of that denial of asylum policy, which said fugitive slaves escaping Union lines had to be returned if their owners were loyal. Douglas, like many others, saw the nonsense in that policy early on. Douglas finally put down the cudgel, and he said with lovely irony, It is really wonderful, said Frederick Douglass, how all efforts to evade, postpone, and prevent its coming have been mocked and defied by the stupendous sweep of events. It's coming, meaning black freedom. And I'd just say lastly, if add a fifth to that. Emancipation transformed the purpose of the war. Emancipation, more than anything else, will make the Civil War a war of conquest, a war of near totality on both sides. And it meant now now that this was going to be a war of conquest on the South, social and economic institutions, it meant it could probably only end in unconditional surrender. Now, it's a complicated story as to how this will be enforced, of course, and I strongly urge you to read certain of those Lincoln documents in the, <clears throat> in the Mike Johnson Reader, and more importantly, to read at least that that greatest hit selection I provided in the reading packet of the documents on emancipation, which, by the way, come out of a book called Free at Last, which is itself a 500-page collection of the greatest hits of the documents of the American Emancipation, which are now published in five volumes, all of which are in the, library, or in the National Archives. But one of those Lincoln documents I don't want you to miss, I said the other day, was the James Conkling letter. It comes in August of 63. One of the reasons that letter is interesting is that it shows us that though Lincoln could be one crafty politician, and whether emancipation will ever truly succeed in this war, of course, depends on the Union winning on the battlefield. It really depended on all those deaths at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg, and so many other horrible places. And yes, it's true that large, large numbers of those Union soldiers who died 
didn't necessarily believe they were fighting to free slaves, nor did they even want to. But sometimes history is ahead of anyone's basic human individual motives, isn't it? But in this Conkling letter, so-called, it's a public letter that Lincoln mastered this presidential art of the public letter more than any previous president. And it was his version of the news conference, which didn't happen in those days. It was his version of an exclusive interview with Anderson Cooper, or whatever the hell it would be today. Um, he wrote letters aimed at certain newspapers, which would then be reprinted across the country. This was a letter to James Conkling, a congressman from Illinois, of his own party, who was opposing emancipation, who was, who was at least wary of it and worried about it. The great worry about the emancipation pro policy, of course, was that white northerners would not accept it. That white northern soldiers would throw down their arms and say, I ain't fighting to free the slaves, I'm fighting to preserve the Union, thank you very much. Lincoln had that great fear himself. But God, read that letter. It, it's one of Lincoln's... It's Lincoln the ironist. It's also Lincoln the persuasive lawyer. In the second page of it, he says to Conkling, he's really saying this to white northerners now, because this letter got published everywhere. You dislike the Emancipation Proclamation, he says, and perhaps would have it retracted. You say it is unconstitutional. I think differently. I think the Constitution invests its commander-in-chief with the law of war in time of war. The most that can be said, if so much, is that the slaves are property. Is there, has there ever been, any question that by law of war, property, both of enemies and friends, may be taken when needed? So there's that argument. Whatever you think of the morality of this, folks, slaves are property of the enemy. I'm taking their assets. That's a legal argument. Then you go to the next page, He's also beginning to make there an argument, if you read that part of the letter carefully, it's an argument for total war, to unconditional surrender. And he's trying to condition public opinion for this. Then you go to the next page. You say you will not fight to free Negroes. Some of them seem willing to fight for you. But no matter... Fight you then exclusively to save the Union. I issued the proclamation on purpose to aid you in saving the Union. Whenever you shall have conquered all resistance to the Union, if I shall urge you to continue fighting, it will be an apt time then for you to declare you will not fight to free Negroes. All right. Crawl into your cul-de-sac and say you're only fighting to save the Union, but here's another way to save the Union. And then he goes on. I thought that in your struggle for the Union, to whatever extent the Negroes should cease helping the enemy, to that extent it weakened the enemy in his resistance to you. Do you think differently? I thought that whatever Negroes can be got to do as soldiers leaves just so much less for white soldiers to do in saving the Union. Almost as if he's appealing to Conkling's 
racial self-interest. Does it appear otherwise to you? And then, Lincoln says, But Negroes, like other people, act upon motives. Why should they do anything for us if we will do nothing for them? If they stake their lives for us, they must be prompted by the strongest motive, even the promise of freedom. And the promise being made must be kept. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of words, right? Words, 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 words. Yeah. But meanings are almost always somewhere, somehow, embedded in words. Now, as I said, now every forward step of the Union armies is going to be a liberating step. And I want to show a, just a quick map here to illustrate something. Um, you can see the colors here to some extent. The simple point of this map is this. It's a map that shows the conquest of the South by Union forces. It's the movement, generally speaking, of Union lines into the South in what becomes now by 62, 63, and 64, a war of conquest west and east. But I want to especially stress that the most important factor in when and where a slave might attain his or her freedom, the first factor, had everything to do with where the armies went. It was proximity to the war that made emancipation possible in northern Virginia in 1862, Sea Islands of Georgia, South Carolina, 62, around the whole New Orleans region in 62, but not possible at all in southern Georgia until after the war was over. Not possible really at all in southern Alabama southern half of Alabama until the whole war was over. Not possible at all in parts of Mississippi until the whole war was over. Hence, that's why the large majority of American slaves were not actually within Union lines or technically free in any way until the war ended. I make one other point about this. There's a, there's a nice book by a historian named Stephen Ash. It's called When the Yankees Came. And it's, it's all about the, the process of Union occupation of parts of the South. He goes in and studies towns in Tennessee and towns in northern Georgia and towns in northern Virginia and tries to understand, so what happened when an area of the South, an area of the Confederacy, came under Union control? And he divides the South usefully here. And it's very useful in understanding how emancipation actually happened on the ground as a human, sometimes brutal, ugly, chaotic, painful process. He divides the South into what he calls one, the three regions. One, the Confederate frontier. The second he calls no man's land. And the third he calls garrisoned towns. Now, that's pretty easy to understand if you think of, uh, just, just take Tennessee up there in the middle. Nashville became, by 1862, Nashville became a garrison, it was the capital of Tennessee. 
it became a garrisoned Union town. That is, it's occupied. Its resources, its railroads, its, its everything were taken over by the Union forces. And then there's the so-called no-man's land, the region, say, between a Nashville and where the Confederate forces were, the land between the armies, which, of course, fluctuated a great deal back and forth. And then lastly, he calls it the Confederate frontier, or at times he'll call it the Confederate hinterland. That is the land behind the line that was never taken by Union forces. The land, the land behind the lines where Confederate resources, relatively speaking, remained intact. They're still producing cotton crops. In the summer of 64, in the fall of 64, and they're still planting in the whole southern half of Georgia and the whole southern half of Alabama, by and large, right on into 1865. But where you happen to be geographically was the first important factor in where and how emancipation might occur in proximity particularly to the armies. Now, a second factor that would determine when and if slaves would be freed was the character of the slave society in any given region. Were they in a densely populated slave region like the Sea Islands, parts of the Cotton Belt, or were they in sparsely populated areas? And it, I mean, again, it, it had to do with geography. Were you in the lower Mississippi Valley? Huge concentrations of slaves. When Grant's forces moved down the Mississippi, and eventually take Vicksburg by July 1863, this entire region, in fact, it is in the lower Mississippi Valley. This is why some people argue that the war, the Civil War was really won and lost in the West. And I'll, I'll engage that argument after the break when we talk about Union victory and Confederate defeat and the various debates among historians trying to explain this. A lot of people have argued that the war is won and lost in the West because of the, the great significance of the Mississippi Valley which had become the great cotton kingdom of the world. And when, when Union forces truly conquered the Mississippi River by the summer of 1863, there are thousands of slaves coming into Union lines. The reason that Grant and Sherman and other officers in the West began to create these things called contraband camps for freed slaves is because they didn't know what, what to do with them. And there are these amazing dispatches written by Grant uh, to, to the War Department saying, what am I going to do with all these people? How do I feed them? Where do I put them? What is their status? What are they legally? And eventually, it's why you get the largest contraband camps anywhere. The largest ones were not in Virginia, although there was a huge one around Washington, D.C. The largest of them were in northern Mississippi at a place called Corinth. You can see it on the map right here. There was a huge contraband camp at Memphis. There was eventually one in Cairo, Illinois. All up and down this region. This is where conquest really happened first and the, the true disruption of southern society and the beginnings of the destruction of plantations. It will lead even uh, to the beginnings. Of, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take another year for it to happen along the East Coast, but it begins in 63, even in 62, but especially 63, where many plantation owners in Louisiana and Mississippi started 
refugeeing their slaves. They would flee their plantations in the face of the Yankee armies, often going west toward Texas, sometimes just further inland or wherever they could go, and they would try to take their slaves with them. It was called refugeeing them. And often what that means, I'll cite some examples of that after the break. There's a famous diary memoir by a southern woman, Kate Stone, who kept a diary of her plantation called Broken Burn. At any rate, uh, she left with some hundred and some slaves uh, to try to get out of Louisiana over into Texas. By the time she got there, half of them were gone. And she kept wondering why. Gee, why would they leave? What happened to their loyalty? Then thirdly, uh, the third factor that would determine when and how and if a slave became free was indeed um, what policy was actually being enforced at any given time by those Union troops, or for that matter, by the Confederate troops, in terms of freeing slaves or not freeing slaves, taking them into their lines or not taking them into their lines, and establishing some kind of legal status. And then the fourth factor, of course, and this one you can't measure. You can know it when you read it and you see it and you hear it. And there's so many wonderful documents that demonstrate it. The fourth factor in when and how American slaves became free was their own ingenuity, their own initiative, their own cunning, their own bravery, their own willingness to risk everything to try to get to something called freedom and not knowing what that freedom would be when they got there. Would they be employed? Would they have shelter? Were they going to be able to feed their children? Could they get their wives and husbands out with them? What about women with three children? Where would they go? What would their status be? Would they actually have any rights? We learned so much about this, and please, in the, in the uh, reading packet, have a close look. I, I included uh, some of those uh, uh, documents from the contraband camps where these superintendents of the, of the contraband camps were all asked a series of questions. They were asked things about the motives of the slaves that escaped into their camps. They were asked to describe why had these people come. They were asked to describe their physical conditions. They were asked to describe uh, what they thought, what they felt, what they said. And all these superintendents of all these contraband camps are just stunned at the, re at the way that black folk keep coming in spite of the hardships. Half clothed, half fed, if that. And they're stunned at the religiosity of escaped slaves. These superintendents write back and they say, these people sing and they worship all night long. Strange. But almost to a man, these superintendents of contraband camps, when asked what were the motives, they simply fall back on the most basic of things. They say things like, um, they wanted their freedom. Now, emancipation also would depend here and there on a whole lot of other factors, but again, they come under these categories I've already given you, the close proximity to the war. Now, for example, when the war moved into Georgia, 
in 63 and 64, when Sherman invaded northern Georgia, and the war really went to the deep hinterland, the heart of the southeast. Confederates were already, and they were already doing this in Virginia. They were, they were beginning to do it out in the west. They surely did it in the, in the city of Mobile and other Confederate-held cities. Confederates had begun to employ or impress their slaves into service, thousands of them. About 3,000 slaves were put to work in Mobile, Alabama, building its fortifications. Slaves, hundreds upon hundreds of slaves were put to work building fortifications of Richmond. An estimated 5,000 slaves were put to work building the fortifications all around Atlanta by late 63 to try to stop Sherman's advance. Very often they were hired out. That is, they were supposed to be paid, or their owners were supposed to be paid for their service. They were used as teamsters and nurses and cooks and boatmen and blacksmiths and laundresses and so on and so forth. If you saw a Confederate army in eight, from 1862 to 64, you'd see hundreds of black people. Well, and as those armies moved, sometimes those slaves had opportunities to flee. In the wake of battles, on any scale, some slaves would always flee. They were often uh, used as the burial crews on both sides. They were also hired out, and this was really significant in Virginia, to the ironworks in Richmond. The Tredegar Ironworks at one point employed almost 4,000 slaves who tended to be hired out from the western parts of Massachusetts and the northern parts of North Carolina. That movement of people, on this scale, movement of slaves, on this scale had never happened in the South. And in the midst of that movement, Linda Morgan wrote a fine book on emancipation in Virginia, and he, she showed this for the first time, that all this movement of, of hired out slaves to Richmond and other small ironworks, by the way, over in the Shenandoah Valley, meant a certain percentage of them began to flee and escape further north. They worked on railroad crews. Uh, it was estimated that in, in northern Georgia, during Sherman's campaign against Atlanta, that about 40% of all the women working as nurses in Confederate hospitals all over the state were slave women. That means they've been taken off their plantations, their farms, or out of their domestic situations, wherever they were, and put to work in the hospitals. So, the point is, movement of the armies meant movement of slaves as well. And that moment of freedom, that moment of escape, that opportunity might come when you would least expect it. And that, that American slave had to make a choice every time. Do I go and risk everything or do I not? Let me tell you one little story amidst that. It's the other half of this book I just did. It's a young slave named Wallace Turnage. He was born in a little, on a little tobacco farm in North Carolina in 1846, Greene County, North Carolina, sold by his indebted owner to a Richmond, Virginia slave trader named Hector Davis, who was one of the largest slave traders in the United States and kept enormous records. Spent about six months in 1860 working in the, the three-story slave jail auction house in Richmond. 
His job every day was preparing the slaves in what was called the dressing room to take them out to the auction floor. And one day he simply told, boy, you're in the auction. And he was sold to an Alabama cotton planter named James Chalmers. 72 hours later by train, he found himself on a huge cotton operation near Pickensville, Alabama, which is uh, right about there, right on the Mississippi border. Plantation with about 85 slaves. And the narrative he left us, which was discovered and lopped into my lap a few years ago, the extraordinary narrative he left, is the story largely of his five attempts to escape in the midst of the war from the age of 14 to 17. He was one passionate, half crazy, one might say, no doubt traumatized, teenage slave who just couldn't be controlled. He ran away four times into Mississippi, the second two of which, certainly at least, he was always trying to get up to northern Mississippi to get to the Union armies, which he knew had controlled the whole northern tier of Mississippi by late spring, 1862. In fact, three of his escapes over there were really... He would always go up the Mobile and Ohio Railway line. At one time, he was at large for four and a half months, hiding in other slave cabins and hiding in woods and forests and gullies and wherever he could hide, and he was always captured. He was trying to actually get to Corinth, and the big contraband camp in Corinth. And he almost made it on his fourth try. He kept being captured by slave patrols, Confederate patrols, and so on. His master would always come after him because he was so valuable. He'd been sold, by the way, for $950 the first time out of North Carolina. He was sold for $1,000 to old Chalmers in Richmond. And Chalmers now got fed up in early '63 of constantly trying to retrieve this kid. And he took him down to Mobile, Alabama and sold him at the slave jail in Mobile in the spring of 1863 for $2,000. That's about the price today of a good Mercedes-Benz. Oh, well, as opposed to a bad Mercedes-Benz, I'm not sure what that would be. Um, and Wallace's fifth and final escape attempt, the one that succeeded came after a vicious beating. He'd been beaten many more times than he could count. He'd been put in neck braces and leg chains and ankle chains and wrist chains and every kind of... He'd experienced about every kind of brutality slavery could wreck upon a teenage kid. And one day he crashed his master's carriage and the master got so angry he took him to the slave jail, hired the jailer to give him 30 lashes with the ugliest whip they had, this contraption they had that would make you bleed on every lash. At the end of it, he's standing there naked, bleeding. His master says, go home. And instead of going home, he put his clothes back on and he walked right through the Confederate Army, a garrison of 10,000 troops, where he was no doubt simply mistaken for yet another black camp hand. And at dusk, he just crossed through the Confederate camp and he walked out of Mobile and his final escape is a three-week trek, which he narrates uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in remarkable ways. A three-week trek down the western shore of Mobile Bay for 25 miles through a snake and alligator-infested swamp, now known as the Fowl River Estuary. I've been there. I've seen the alligators and the snakes from a large ferry boat. 
And he describes one day praying especially hard when he got out to the tip of Mobile Bay and the tide brought in an old rickety rowboat. He tipped over the rowboat, took a plank of wood, and he just started rowing out into the ocean. And in quite dramatic form, he, which is no doubt a little embellished, he describes how a wave is about to swamp his little boat and he hears oars. And the oars were a Union gunboat with eight sailors. They said, jump in. He jumped in. And he said, as he sat down in their boat, he said, the Yankee sailors were struck with silence as they looked at him. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't doubt it. They probably were struck with silence, wondering who he was and how he got there. They took him to a sand island fort and clothed him and fed him. The first kind act by a white person the 17-year-old turnage had ever experienced. And the next day they took him to Fort Gaines on Dauphin Island, which is the big, beautiful sandbar island out at the mouth of Mobile Bay. And he was brought before the Union commander of all forces in, in the area, uh, Gordon Granger, who interrogated him, probably because they wanted intelligence about Mobile. And Granger gave him two choices. He could either join a black regiment that they were forming at that very time in the Gulf region, or he could become a servant to a white officer. And Wallace chose the latter. Didn't tell us why, but probably because he'd had enough suffering. He'd seen enough of uh, his own war with the Confederates. And he served out the war for another year as the mess cook for a captain from a Maryland regiment whose name was Junius Turner. And Wallace was with that regiment in Baltimore, Maryland in August of 1865 when it was mustered out. He lived three years in Baltimore and then moved to New York City where he lived the rest of his life until 1916. But by 1870, I found him in a census manuscript living on the 300 block of Thompson Street in what you and I call Greenwich Village. He got his mother, his four siblings, somehow out of North Carolina, and they were all living in a tenement house, surviving as part of the first generation of a black working class, former slaves, in a northern city. He lived till 1916. He's buried in Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. The point of all of that is that these slaves escaping were real people with real names, real family, real hopes and desires. And those who survived, some of those who survived told us what it meant. Now, um, the war, of course, raged on. And at the end of the day, this is a photograph, by the way, taken in 1862, I believe, um, in Virginia. The photographer simply called it a group of contrabands. The war raged on, and of course, in the spring of 1863, the Union armies will invade Virginia again. I'm going to come back to lots of this after the break when we get back to the military history and try to explain how the Union side won this war. They'll fight a horrible battle at a place called Chancellorsville near Fredericksburg and 
May of 1863, which will be another smashing victory by Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson over a Union army commanded by Joseph Hooker. It will give Lee his occasion for his second invasion of the North, the riskiest of all, which will lead him up through northern Virginia, across into Maryland, and eventually all the way into Pennsylvania, and will lead to the fateful battle at Gettysburg, first three days of July 1863, arguably the most important military turning point of the war. But it is in those same first six and seven months of 1863 that this war has now been transformed into a war of unconditional surrender, a war of all-out attempt, at least, all-out mobilization at home and conquest in the South. It is during this period that black soldiers are being recruited. The 54th Massachusetts, the famous regiment from Massachusetts by which the movie Glory was made, was recruited that winter and spring, of course, and marched off to South Carolina to its fate um, in May of 1863. They will reach their fate at Fort Wagner within a, a week of the Battle of Gettysburg back up north. But just as a way to take this out today, go back with me to July 1st, uh, excuse me, January 1st, 1863, the day the Emancipation Proclamation actually went into place. I said at the outset that for most black folk, they didn't really care about what actually the details or the words of the document were. The point was that now somehow the United States government was sanctioning emancipation. And go back with me to Thomas Wentworth Higginson. This is Higginson's description of Emancipation Day. On Hilton Head Island in South Carolina, near Beaufort, North Car Beaufort, South Carolina, he was given orders to read the Emancipation Proclamation to the people, to the, to the freedmen. And this, by the way, became a policy throughout the Union Army. Thousands of copies of the Emancipation Proclamation were given to Union officers who were ordered to spread it around the South. Higginson not only spread it, he held a, a ceremony. They built a little stage. And this is his description of what happened. He's describing the scene. All this was according to the program, writes Higginson. Then followed an incident so simple and so touching, so utterly unexpected and startling, that I can scarcely believe it on recalling it, though it gave the keynote to the whole day. The very moment the speaker had ceased, and just as I took and waved the flag, which now for the first time meant anything to these poor people, there suddenly arose close beside the platform a strong male voice, but a little cracked and elderly, into which two women's voices instantly blended, singing, as if by an impulse that could no more be repressed than the morning note of a song sparrow. My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. People looked at each other and then at us on the platform to see whence came this interruption not put down in the program. Firmly and irrepressibly the quavering voices sang on, verse after verse, My country tis of thee, 
sweet land of liberty. Others of the colored people joined in. Some whites on the platform began, but I motioned to them to be silent. I never saw anything so electric. It made all words cheap. It seemed the choked voice of a race at last unloosed. Nothing could be more wonderfully unconscious. Art could not have dreamed of a tribute to the day of Jubilee that should be so affecting. History will not believe it. And when I came to speak of it after it was ended, tears were everywhere. If you could have heard how quaint and innocent it all was, just think of it. The first day they'd ever had a country. The first flag they'd ever seen which promised anything to their people. And here, while mere spectators stood in silence waiting for my stupid words, these simple souls burst out in their lay as if they were by their own hearths at home. When they stopped, there was nothing to do but to try to speak. And I went on. But the life of that whole day was in those unknown people's simple song. Have a good spring break. Welcome back. And that was uh, Professor David Blight of Yale University speaking on the historical context of the Emancipation Proclamation, which we commemorated uh, just five days ago, uh, the 161st anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, which was signed on uh, earlier, but uh, which went into effect on January 1st, uh, 1863. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, January the 6th. Uh, 2024, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with our concluding remarks uh, for uh, this program.
close out with Hater Brooks. This is Abayomi Azikawe and have a beautiful week.
This is my best affair. So please, please be kind. Handle my heart with care. Oh, please be kind. This is all so grim. My dreams are on parade. Say you'll understand. Tell me your love's been seen. Oh, please be kind. Tell me I needn't fear. Oh, please be kind. For this I. My heart would lose its mind if you love. Please be kind. Tell me your love and see. We were 
Just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 